Hello, and welcome to Core Sampler, the podcast where we drill into the Sitecore community to bring you insights into the work talented people are doing every day on the Sitecore Experience platform. Whether you're a developer, a marketer, or both, we're glad you're here. And now your host, Derek Dysart. Welcome to Core Sampler. My name is Derek Dysart, and in this episode, we're going to cover some of the aspects of a Sitecore project that are often overlooked. Um, either they're not incorporated into the project plan or they may be, um, even if they are, they're kind of left to last. And then there's a mad dash as we're trying to wrap up code and get, get sign off on the site, uh, getting components deployed to the various environments. Um, just kind of aspects that may or may or may not be overlooked by most Sitecore teams. So, uh, with that, I dive into a, a few of the things that I came up with in talking to a few other folks. The first has to do with redirects. So redirects obviously are uh, a part of almost every website, mainly because it is rare in this day and age that you're developing a, uh, especially a Sitecore site for a, a completely brand new web property. Oftentimes, you're replacing an existing content management platform with Sitecore or potentially even a an existing Sitecore site. And maybe part of that redesign is addressing the information architecture of the site and the URL structure. And it may be a case that pages move across the site. So you may have had an about section before, or it may have been a single page. And now a lot of the information about your company is spread across a number of pages, um, or your product hierarchy has changed. And with it, the product URL structure. And so the reason we would want to do a redirect on those is, for any existing links inbound to the site um, to be to still be crawled by the search engines and and seen as valid. So, for example, if somebody's linking to a product page on your old site, you launch the new site. Now that link, when someone like Google crawls that link, may get a four hundred four because that page doesn't exist. Um, that product still may very well exist in your site, but now it lives somewhere else on a different URL. So we'll want to send a what is known as a three hundred one redirect. 301 being the HTTP code for a content moved permanently notice that says this content that you were requesting is no longer here. It's over at this other URL. And this is also common if you're consolidating a number of sites. Uh, I've worked with a number of companies where they had upwards of 10, 20 different domains that they realized was just kind of diluting their brand. And maybe they wanted to consolidate those underneath one, one simple domain structure. So they are consolidating all those domains into a single domain underneath one domain name and having 301 redirects on those domains is also something fairly valid uh, that you'll want to do, especially from a search engine standpoint, or just even, even for people that may have your site bookmarked. And now that their bookmark may, uh, instead of the return of 404, uh, will actually take them to the, the page that they, they thought they were going to. And I like in, 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 from a Sitecore standpoint, I like in, there are two kind of redirects that you'll want to consider. I would classify the first 
set as what I would call permanent redirects. So these are, uh, as I just mentioned, kind of uh, a list of all the old URLs on your site and where that new content lives uh, if they've changed. If they haven't changed, then great. Um, that request comes in on that old URL and it'll serve the new content out of Sitecore. But if you've reorganized your product tree and the product hierarchy, um, you'll need to have a list or a set of rules that uh, send people off to the correct URL. Um, and once the site's live, these aren't going to change all that much. These are for historical purposes. You'll want to have them in place uh, specifically for SEO purposes so you don't have a lot of your old uh, your old URLs hanging out there that are now 404ing. Um, so what I typically recommend to folks is to use the IIS rewrite module. And the reason is this uh, takes Sitecore out of the, the picture. The redirect is actually handled within IIS. It's, uh, it's incredibly fast. The IIS rewrite module uh, runs at a, at a much lower level than even the Sitecore, uh, the Sitecore code does in IIS. And it's, uh, it's a very fast redirect. The, the, the downside is, is those redirects are stored in a config file. They're technically stored in the web config. Uh, and one of the suggestions I'll make from a technical standpoint, and Sitecore followed this suggestion probably in the uh, version 8.1 timeframe, that IAS has trouble with config files that get above a certain size. And there are registry settings you can go into in Windows to increase the file size. That, And it's actually not so much the file size, it's the number of lines in the config file. Once it gets past a certain point, and I don't know it offhand, and, and, and it has changed for various versions of Windows. But once that file gets too large, IS will refuse to parse the file unless you go change this registry setting. So part of the overall web config standard uh, allows you to link to external files. So if you look at the stock web config that ships with Sitecore version 8.1, uh, 8.2, or 9, you'll notice that at the very top of web config, it will define a configuration handler, uh, which is how the entire Sitecore section of the web config file is handled. Um, and then there's in the web config, there is actually a Sitecore node and it uses an attribute called config source that says the configuration for this node in the large XML document that is the web config lives in this external file. And by default, that is under the app underscore config folder. And inside there, there's a sitecore.config. So the same goes with IIS rewrite rules. So one of the, the methods that gets used quite a bit is somebody will go through and spider the old site, get a list of all the URLs, and potentially determine where where they should live on the new site. Um, and if you have a number of them and there's not a general pattern uh that, you know, for instance, maybe your information architecture changed so that uh, instead of uh, it being www.domain.com slash about, um, now it's www slash domain slash company. And the page structure underneath there stays the same. Well, then you can create a, what's, what's known as a pattern that says, you know, if this URL starts with about, let's redirect it to the company. Uh, domain. So that, that's a pattern. But if, it, if there's no solid pattern, one of the best ways to approach this is with something called a rewrite map. And IAS allows you to do this 
Um, the suggestion I would have if you're new to this, especially, is to try configuring it via the IAS uh, administrative module. Um, so you launch the uh, Internet Information Server Management Tool. There's a URL rewrite section. You can set up a, uh, a rewrite map. All of that gets written to the web config. And why why is it not good to have this in the web config? Um, it's because every time the web config gets uh, written to, um, IAS sees that the web config changed and it needs to bounce the app pool. And then, therefore, you may have some time where your site's not responsive as the app pool is being recycled. Um, session state gets cleared at that point. Uh, it's not drained out to XDB. It's actually just completely... Um, it's, it's completely ended and it's lost. But if you go ahead and, and create just a, a single entry in a rewrite map uh, via the tool and, and save it and then go to the file system, you can actually see the format that IIS uses to store these rewrite maps. So if you're not familiar with it, it's a really good way to kind of use a nice user interface to set up one of these rules uh, with a rewrite map. And then from there, you can take um, work that somebody else might have done in a spreadsheet, um, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's in Excel or, or what have you, and use that to format this rewrite map. And then Put that into uh, put that into a file, and as I indicated before, if you have a large number of URLs that you're going to rewrite using this method, you could quickly increase the number of lines in your web config. So this is one place where, if you look in the web config section, and it's in the web .server section of the web config, it will show you where the rewrite map is, and that. That map file, the, the, the file that is going to end up with all the lines of if it's this URL, this is the new URL. If this is if it's this one, it, here's the new one. That can be used the same method that Sitecore uses to pull in their configuration to pull that configuration in from an external configuration file. So you look into using config source. And again, as I indicated at the opening of the show, um, there will be a number of links in the show notes to this show, which you can find at coresampler.fm slash Three, three. You can then store that rewrite map in an external config file, and therefore you have a lot more kind of space, if you will, that IIS will then can parse these files. So that's that's what I would recommend for what I would call the, these permanent rewrites, uh, rewrites that are kind of legacy from older versions of the site. Uh, you want to keep those links alive, redirect them to the new new location on the site. But even still, once the site goes live, um, there's still potentially going to be a need for rewrites within the site. And a lot of times the content owners are going to want to be able to address these. And so for those, I would recommend using a rewrite module within Sitecore. Um, that way they can edit these rewrites within Sitecore. Maybe it's a, a really short rewrite for a marketing campaign. Um, you're trying to drive someone deep to a page in your site and you're not necessarily going to print a hundred character long URL. It just doesn't stick in people's mind. But if you have a, you know, a simple, you know, say your promotion you know, or, or your campaign is the XYZ campaign. And if you go to www.domain slash XYZ, you can learn more. Now, potentially you want that XYZ URL to redirect to somewhere deep within your product category. So managing those as content within Sitecore is, is is very convenient because the uh, the approach I outlined earlier 
for managing these in IAS uh, requires requires developer intervention. Um, those are files typically not edited by the content editor. They live on the server. Uh, they have to be mirrored across all of your delivery servers uh, if you're using a delivery farm. So having these in content in Sitecore um, is, is very convenient for the for the content editor. The challenge is if you go to, you know, now you're you're the Sitecore tech lead and you're like, oh, I need redirects. So you go to the Sitecore marketplace and it's gotten better. Um, I, before recording this, I just I just did a search. But if you search for redirect in the Sitecore marketplace, there's right now you get about six modules that come up. It used to be a lot more. Um, and Typically, how these were written is they were installed, uh, they plugged themselves into the HTTP begin request pipeline, and they would look to see, uh, you know, they would look at the URL and then go searching through a section of the tree to see if there is an actual rewrite that needs to happen. The challenge is, is that that pipeline gets run on every single request. So uh, as the number of rewrites go up, searching through that tree could become quite expensive, especially since a lot of them use the old Sitecore search paradigm, which did not leverage any of the search indexes built into Sitecore. So the the one I like to point people to, and this one is in the marketplace, it's by Andy Cohen from Horizontal Integration. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why I like this one. One, he does leverage the content search API for uh, doing searches, but then he does allow you to specify patterns as if you would uh, using standard regular expression patterns that you would use in in almost any other rewrite technology, whether it's IIS, whether it's Apache, whether it's Nginx. Um, almost all web servers support some sort of regular expression searching for rewrites. So he does support that. And the other part is he does support specific rewrites by site, um, which if you are using a multi-site installation of Sitecore and really you should be developing as if you are, because down the road, adding another domain to your site should be something that's very easy. If you do not do that from the beginning, it becomes a very difficult, um, a, a, a difficult task in a deed. So again, check out the link. The other reason I like is um, the source code's available. Uh, Andy has a link in his marketplace page to the GitHub repository, and I have a number of uh, a number of customers that have that have utilized this module to great success. Um, they have different rewrites per. Uh, per site and it's uh, very easy to maintain. So something to check out. So that's, that's about rewrites. The next thing I think uh, that kind of gets saved to last. And I, I would liken this one to Sitecore kind of making this a lot more difficult than you think it should be, but that's error pages. Uh, typically every site um, is going to want a, some strongly branded page uh, for their 404 page. 404 being list page was not found. Uh, so for pages, you know, maybe we decided we aren't going to redirect this page and we want to return a 404 page. Um, and historically, this has been a challenge with Sitecore. Uh, if you try and request a page in Sitecore that doesn't exist, Sitecore will redirect you to the not found page. 
um, and then display that page. The, the challenge is you get a 302 redirect, which is a, te- what is, um, according to the spec, a temporary redirect that says this page isn't here right now, it, but it's temporarily over here. And then it serves the page not found page. Which, you know, tells the user, Hey, I couldn't, I, I couldn't find this page, but behind the scenes, it actually returns an HTTP status code of 200. And so if you're not kind of familiar with HTTP status codes, the 200 basically says I was able to serve this page correctly. Um, there were no issues with it. It, it executed just fine. Now, that's not what we want for a page not found. We actually want to return a status code of 404, which, according to the HTTP spec, is the page was not found. So in order to do that, I'm going to point you to a wonderful series of blog articles. It's actually a two-article two series by John Rappel with GeekHive. Um, and he kind of gives the definitive uh, implementation details on how to handle page not found pages. Um, so the, the, the first one is the 404 page. The 404 page basically states, again, this page wasn't found. Uh, oftentimes, a lot of uh, a lot of companies and a lot of designers want that to have some sort of branding on it. It is a branding opportunity. A user experience designer might have you do some sort of search on that page. So to look at the URL and see if you can pull some keywords out of there and say, you know, we don't have this page. Maybe you are interested in these pages that we do have. Uh, or providing a search interface right on that page that says, unfortunately, we didn't find the content you were looking for. Maybe you can search for what you were looking for here. Um, and that's that's more from a user experience standpoint. That's not anything, you know, specific to Sitecore. That's just good user experience design uh, of your website. But having that 404 page, uh, come up and actually be served as a 404 that tells, you know, it tells the browser that, you know, there was an error and there was an error that occurred. The page wasn't found. Uh, search engines, when they do crawl the site, when they see a 404 page, they don't index that page. So that, that's a, that's a good approach. And John, John unloads that really well, uh, in his, in his blog post. And the second one is, is what's known as a 500 error. And that means there was an internal error within, the the web server and you know some error occurred and there's i i've taken a number of different approaches and I, I like the approach that john takes um he has a dedicated page for the 500 error because there's there's a number of errors that could occur uh if you have some bad code in your Sitecore implementation maybe there's a view you have that or a, or a controller that you know doesn't do a null reference check and throws an error that could end up being an uncaught, uh, an uncaught exception, which if you don't do anything, ends up in the the, the infamous yellow screen of death or the uh, the ASP.NET error page. Um, and depending on your configuration, you may get a stack trace, which we definitely don't want to show to our end customers. Um, it's kind of you know airing our dirty laundry of of things going on behind the scenes. So we want to show a friendly error page. Um, the other type of 500 error that could be is you know, maybe something's wrong with the Sitecore configuration, or maybe Sitecore can't connect to the SQL database. Um, and Sitecore itself, not our code, but Sitecore is actually throwing an unhandled exception. And we want that to be served to the customer as well, or the, the end user, I should say. So John goes through setting up just a, just a very simple ASPX page that, um, is configured via the web config to handle the 500 errors. 
So definitely something to think of. And I, I would say just even from a web standpoint in general, um, be sure, you know, as you're, as you're doing your, your website, um, take into consideration 404 pages. You know, you'll find a lot of design blogs. We'll, we'll talk about the, the, the crafty and humorous 404 pages that, that people have, but it isn't, it, it, it is an opportunity for both improving user experience and branding. So you, you want to make sure your brand still lives on, you know, somebody, you know, maybe somebody just fat fingers, they're typing in the URL to a, to a, a section of your site and, you know, they mistype something, uh, or, um, or it's a page that doesn't live there anymore. You, you still want kind of consistent branding on your page and it's an opportunity to maybe assist the user that, you know, if it was a page that doesn't exist anymore, maybe that product's been replaced. Um, or maybe maybe the product number has changed or you know there's a common misspelling of it. So having that search functionality is definitely a good user experience for for your end user to be able to find the actual content they were looking for. The next thing I think that a lot of a lot of projects I, I think it's not that they overlook it because a lot of times I'll get a set of design comps for a website. And, you know, ubiquitous in the header, um, designers have seemed to have, um, seem to have realized that search is, a, is, is very important to the end user. They want to allow, they want to allow the end user to be able to search the site. So then it's up to, you know, the, the, the implementer to actually implement that search. Um, and oftentimes the, the design for search stops at that search bar in the header. Um, there are, I've been on a number of projects where I've had to go back to the designer to say, what does the search results look like? Are we going to offer some sort of faceted search? Are we going to offer the ability for the user to further refine their searches or how might they want to sort the search results? So that's, that, that's just even not even related to Sitecore. Um, something you want to make sure you have that you're taking that into consideration. It's a, it's a page just like your product detail page is a page or your product listing page or any other sort of content that's on your site. So once you have that design, then it comes down to how are you going to implement that? And I think I, I've run into a lot of developers, especially developers that come to the Sitecore platform from, from other technologies or maybe they're .NET developers and having to kind of change their way of thinking when it comes to search and indexing such as either Lucene or Solar. Lucene or Solar are, you know, they're databases in effect. Um, they, they, Sitecore has integrated those indexing technologies into the platform. They will crawl all the content in the Sitecore tree and then allow you to search that content very, very rapidly, even if you have millions and millions of items. Early, early kind of Sitecore search used, used a, a kind of a flavor of XPath to do searching in the Sitecore tree and behind the scenes, it literally walked the entire tree and inspected every node looking for it. Does the template name equal this or does this attribute equal that? And as you scaled up to millions and millions of items in your Sitecore tree, that got really slow. Technologies such as Lucene or Solar use the power of those technologies to be able to search across millions of records. But you have to kind of understand how that information stored in there. Um, and this comes into play when you want to add faceting on your search. Uh, a faceted search, if you're not familiar with it, is if you go to a search page. And I, and I liken it to, you see this a lot on, uh, on product catalog pages. 
you know, let's say you're you're buying a new computer and you're you're searching the the retailer site and you want to only see computers underneath a certain price range that have 16 gigabytes of memory and a four terabyte hard drive. Um, oftentimes, and typically designs will have this being a left rail uh, as a filter on the side uh, of your search results that you tick a box that says four gigabytes. So there's a drive size that uh, and there was an option for four terabytes and then potentially a a system memory checkbox that said 16 gigabytes. All of those are facets on your search. So you're faceting on very specific uh, very specific data related to your search. So in, a, in an overall site search, that might mean what kind of search result is it? Is it a document from our document library, whether we're, we have our products and manuals online, or is it a general page within our site that has some important information on it? Is it a case study? Is it, uh, you know, so the information type is typically one thing that you'll want to facet on. And there may be other, uh, that may be other information. And if you're familiar with doing queries against a, uh, a relational database, um, that seems very straightforward. You'll do some sort of join and you'll have a where clause in your SQL statement, which is not how that works for Lucene and, and Solar. What you need to do is make sure that that information is actually on the document that gets stored in the index. So when Lucene or Solar comes through and actually indexes your uh, your item, the information that you want to be able to facet on has to be a field on that item as it gets stored into Lucene or Solar. And a lot of times that information may not be on the Sitecore item itself. Um, maybe it is a uh, maybe it is a drop list field that lists all of the you know that this that you can have your kind of taxonomy tags in. So this this page is a case study and it also contains a product manual. I don't, it's making something up. So having that as your taxonomy, you need to be able to you need to be able to query against that and then get information from Lucene that says this has this tag of this and this other value. Um, or it may be, maybe it's, it's related to the product hierarchy itself. And that's where things like computed fields come in. So maybe at index time, I need to calculate what this value is. Um, I don't want to calculate it every time somebody searches because it's too expensive. So we calculate it at, at index time. And now we can use that as uh, e- either as a facet or something that we can search against. So as you're building out your search results page, um, keep that in mind. If there, if you have requirements to have faceted search or to be able to sort, the, the, the best way I've been able to get my head around both um, indexing, whether it's Lucene or solar or even, or even a, a, another technology such as, such as Cobeo, uh, is to think of, think of a, a, a highly denormalized table. If you want to relate that to like, say uh, a spreadsheet, um, with a lot of columns on it, sometimes not all the columns are filled in, which is the indexes handle very well. 
But you need to be able to have some column, uh, especially if you use the data features in in a tool like Excel or, or Google Sheets, where you can say, "I want to uh, I want to filter on this particular column," and it'll show you the values that are available in that column. Fastening works very similar to that. Finally, I think the last the the last part isn't a. a isn't related to a specific technology, but it's it's understanding who your end customers are. And you're you're probably thinking, Derek, that's that's pretty obvious. Our, our, our customers are our end customer; they're going to come to our site. But as a, as a developer, whether you're working on the front end or you're you're working on just the the Sycor implementation side of it, um, you have two customers. Or I like to I like to say that you have two customers. You do have your end customer, your end your end client that's going to come to the site. Whether you know if it's an intranet, it's you know the internal employee that's going to get information from this, or it's it's the end customer that's going to learn information about your company, uh, get information from your website. But you also have the content editor, the people that need to maintain the site. Um, part of the great power that comes with Sitecore or any content management system for that standpoint is they don't need a developer to maintain the content. That's the promise of content management systems for several decades now. So having that in place, um, we need to make the system easy enough for the content editors to maintain their content. Um, Sitecore has a really great tool, and I've talked about it on the podcast at last. It used to be called the page editor. It's now called the experience editor that allows you to edit content in place on the web page. Um, and it allows you to do even more than that with Sitecore with their correct, um, with the correct configuration. You can do personalization and you can personalize content directly on the page. So if you have a promo item on the, the, the right hand side of the page and we want to personalize that and put some personalization rules that say, you know, if they came in on this, on, on this campaign, and this is their third visit and they are from the Netherlands, we went to show this promo. So that, that is very easy to do. And, and the, the experience editor makes that a lot easier to do than older versions of Sitecore where you had to go into presentation details and then personalize a very specific control and, and whatnot. So editing the content that's on the page is very easy in the experience editor. But whoa, what about content that's not on the page? Uh, that I'll go back to the example I used earlier. Maybe you've tagged content as, uh, as the content type. So this is a case study and a product manual that may or may not be displayed on the page. There may be a little tag or something on the page where that's actually displayed. But what if it's not? Uh, another one is um, internal fields on the page. Uh, going back to SEO, what about the page title? What appears in the browser tab or the meta description? or the meta keywords for that page. How do we edit those? Because they're not technically in the visual representation of the page. So this is where taking into account that the content editor is going to want to edit that information while they're editing the other content on the page. So in your code, you can detect, um, and it's on your view. It's, uh, it's, it's, you can look at the page mode and, and Psyker will tell you, are you, are you in the experience editor or are you previewing or are you, you know, or are you not? You can detect whether or not you're, you're in that function and conditionally display additional fields on the page that allow, and then allow the content editor to edit those fields. So for example, being able to edit the, the page title, maybe you display that 
in a as a heading inside of a nice little box that's got some styling on it. You may have to work with your designers or, or take some liberties with your CSS. Um, make make that look appropriate and allow allow the content editor to edit that content. Uh, another uh, another nice tactic I've seen is. Uh, a lot of times you'll have, uh, if you're properly using data sources for your content, say we'll go back to that promo before. Maybe that's a promo that you're running in several areas of the website. And so you don't want to have to, you don't want to have to edit it on every page or if, if there was a typo in it, you want to change it once. Um, now you can, you can edit that in one place and have that shared content be updated in all the places that it's used. That's the the beauty of data sources. It's also the drawback that maybe a content editor edited something because it didn't, you know, that the picture didn't look right with the rest of the pictures on the page. So we're going to swap that out with a, with a different image. And then, you know, they publish that and it gets approved. And now somebody else complains like, wait, who, who approved the change of all these images on every part of the site? So the content editor didn't realize that was a shared item. Uh, and there's nothing really in Sitecore that says this is a shared item. I suppose you could you could look to see is this data source used in a, in a number of different areas, but this comes down to actually segregating your data correctly, where shared uh, shared data source items are stored in a common folder that's known as shared. So detecting that in your view behind the scenes and potentially adding some additional CSS around that item just to give it some sort of indication. And, and again, this is a design. Uh, this is a design thing that you need to approach when you're when you're implementing Sitecore. Um, it's not built into the platform, but it, it is taking care of that other user and it caring about that user experience for your content editor. So they, they know that that is a shared item and that, you know, maybe they get pause before like, well, maybe I should look and see where that else is, is, is edited before they just kind of willy nilly edit the heading on that promo. And now it's changed everywhere else. So giving that indication is, is a really good approach just to help your content editors. The other thing is, is using appropriate use of of kind of indicators within the experience editor or even the content editor yourself with a little warning flag. Sitecore is pretty good about this. Uh, you'll see these warnings in the content area that says, or you must lock this item before you can edit it. So those are content editor warnings. And if you, if you look, the, those are not that difficult to add. Maybe you have ones that you know, that are appropriate for your organization that you want to indicate to your content editors. Something to keep in mind as you're kind of designing the site beyond just the kind of the visual user experience of your, uh, of your public facing or the, the kind of the, the site as your site visitors consume it, but, but keep your content editors in mind as well. And I guess it goes without saying, I, I don't think this is a case anymore, but definitely make it so you can use the experience editor, make it so your fields are editable, all, all things to kind of consider as you're designing your site or solution. So I hope that was helpful. Um, you know, if, if there are things you think I missed or you think I'm crazy, let me know. Info at coresampler.fm. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. What are, what are some of the, what are some of the big things that you've seen on projects? Uh, like I said, if I had a number of times where I've had to go back to a designer that says, what does the search result page look like? Um, this happened, it, it's happened more than once. And I think it's, it's easy to kind of overlook, uh, cause you know, you're kind of focused on a lot of the other kind of branding aspects of the site. Um, but you know, 
maintenance, it, it's an, an important part of the site nonetheless. So let me know. Let me know what other parts you, you know, you if you had a dollar for every time somebody forgot to do this, uh, I'd love to hear them. Drop me a line at info at coresampler.fm. Otherwise, uh, see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in and talk to you later. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Core Sampler. To see show notes from this and past episodes, please visit coresampler.fm. There, you can also subscribe to this podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a friend and then go to iTunes to rate and comment on our show. Even if you're using a different app to listen to us, those ratings and reviews really do help others find us. Are you a professional working with Sitecore and interested in joining the show? Or would you like to leave some feedback directly? We want to hear from you. Drop us a line at info at coresampler.fm. That is all for this episode of Core Sampler. We'll see you next time.